0: You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us.
1: Well, it's good to see you all here this morning. I want to uh, start out by uh, thanking Andy for the communion, just uh, his vulnerability, sharing his heart with us. And uh, for the rest of the church, I want to say that I'm grateful for you. But with this... You need to be grateful for Andy, having him in my my life. Super appreciate the role that he plays in that. You guys need to be grateful that he keeps me reined in. So, anyway, um, amen. Do do you want to uh, solicit your guys' prayers for next week, too? Jackie and I have uh, been asked to head up to Denver. What started out as a marriage retreat, kind of has turned into a staff retreat, marriage retreat, and me preaching on Sunday up there as well. Appreciative of the opportunity, a lot going on, just uh, pray for our sanity in the midst of all of it. And uh, as you can see behind me here, uh, most of you, how many of you are using our app these days? That's uh, probably 70, 80 percent. Just want to recommend it. It's a great one-stop shop for everything uh, that we've got going on worldwide, as well as the uh, notes of each of the lessons are in there. You can kind of follow along, fill in the blanks. Uh, That's made available to you, though, as well. I think, as you know, we're starting, and it is free. Just go to the uh, Apple Store applications and uh, search South Bay Church, and it'll pop on up. We're uh, kicking off our new uh, series here, Frequently Asked Questions About Christianity. Uh, We've got a number of different services over the next few weeks dealing with some pretty cool topics. Uh, Why do people reject God? Does it matter if I go to church? Why does God allow suffering Uh, or science and the Bible enemies? And obviously the one we're kicking off today is, what happens after we die? Wow. Maybe, um, there's going to be a number of reactions today. Uh, some will be thought-provoking, some may be a little aggravating, some may just tick you off. But uh, ultimately where I hope it takes you is understanding how incredibly significant Jesus' words specifically how incredibly significant Jesus' words are when it comes to navigating this thing we call life. Got a uh, short video we're going to start out with and then we'll uh, go from there.
0: Death is not pretty. It doesn't smell good, and it can be pretty sad. However, for the individual, it can be a spiritual and euphoric experience. Because every person who has ever lived and will ever live will eventually die, the physical effects after death are pretty well documented. Every year, about 55 million people die. That comes out to between one and two people per second. So, what happens when you die? Death comes in two forms, clinical death and biological death. When you enter clinical death, some organs are still alive, but most vital functions have stopped. People can be brought back from this state, leading to near-death experiences. These experiences are generally described as euphoric experience, where you are sometimes separated from the body and seemingly travel toward a light at the end of a tunnel. However, this is likely not a supernatural phenomenon. Studies have shown that this experience can be induced by increasing the carbon dioxide level in the blood, something that happens when the heart stops. Because this effect can be chemically induced, it's likely a physical phenomenon. Now back to the physical effects of death. Just before brain activity stops, a surge in activity occurs. It's not fully known what these activities are accomplishing. It's believed that this is a response to death as the brain tries to piece together the information it's receiving. This results in a realer than real, euphoric, hallucinogenic experience, similar to a dream state, easing the mind into death. Here's when things get incredibly interesting or incredibly gross. As the body enters Algo Mortis, the heart stops as does the blood it pumps. Cellular respiration and muscular activity stops causing the body temperature to cool toward room temperature. Eyes slightly deflate due to low blood pressure and the blood begins to pool, causing a purple skin discoloration. After about two to four hours, rigor mortis sets in. Since respiration has stopped, oxygen used to produce ATP, the energy source used to contract muscles, causes the body to relax and stiffen. The stiffening cannot be reversed until the decomposition muscle tissue breaks down the ATP receptors. By this point, you would likely be embalmed and chilled. This process is used to slow down the decomposition process. But what happens if you died and nobody found you? after about a day the cells in your body would burst releasing chemicals that further assist decomposition the trillions of bacteria and enzymes in the body would eat away at the organs releasing gases that then cause the body to puff this is followed by putrid greenish coloration of the skin over the course of a few days the skin would also blister and start to peel away Not to mention, the smell would be bad. So bad that it attracts insects that further assist in decomposition. These insects also lay eggs that hatch into larvae. These larvae consume a large portion of the soft body tissues, and over the course of a few weeks, gaping holes allow the decomposition fluids to drain. By this time you've been dead for about a month or two, and depending on the climate, the body has started to seriously dry out. The atmospheric conditions, temperature, humidity, and animal life all affect the current state of the body. The body ranges from a black mummified corpse to a purely bone skeleton. Over time, the body will withstand varying levels of preservation, but eventually every cell, every molecule, and every atom will be broken down and reabsorbed into the environment. The body is a vessel for life. Although death is dark, disgusting, gross, and scary.
1: Well, there you have it. Any questions about what happens after you die? You're good, thank you. I guess that takes Go Green to a whole nother level, right? Uh, thank you. Yeah, where is Andy? Uh, okay, well, I think you and I both have some things to talk about when it comes to our visual presentations, but anyway, um, so we are, again, kicking off our new series here, Frequently Asked Questions About Christianity. When it comes to death, there's quite a bit out there. There's been a lot of books that have been written on it, there's a lot of movies, uh, that have taken place through the years, uh, any of you remember Flatliners way back in the day with Kiefer Sutherland? You know, there's been a lot that's been done, and I'm sure there's been some things that have done since, but, uh, You know, we've got psychics that have a lot to say about it. You know, Miss Chloe has made thousands upon thousands of dollars with her information about death before she ended up in federal penitentiary. But anyway, so what happens when we die? This is not a question that has not crossed all of our minds at some point in time or another. You know, it's something that affects us all. It doesn't matter how old you are, race, gender, religion, or status. This is an unconquerable foe that has really taken out Think of the greats through history. You know, I, I look at some of the uh, some of the different emperors in different, different situations through the years. Alexander the Great, he was great, but not a great enough to overcome death, right? We have Julius Caesar, Confucius, Muhammad, Siddhartha Gautama, who referred to himself as Buddha, and I probably butchered that, but I've never heard anybody pronounce anything other than Buddha before, so anyway. But all of these individuals, I mean, there's all these postulates, these theories about what happens. When you die, Einstein weighed in, Carl Sagan weighed in, and everything they came up with couldn't be proved because none of them have yet come back to say, see, I told you so. And again, today, there may be some things that are a little thought-provoking. I'd like you to get beyond that. There may be some things that get you a little worked up or agitated. I'd like you to get beyond that and just kind of wait until we get to the punchline at the end, amen? Now, I'm not claiming to be an expert on this, you know, for obvious reasons, I've not died and come back to be able to brag about it. But I think there's some great things that the Bible has to say about it. And though we may die, Jesus says, and this is pretty significant. Jesus says in John 11, verse 25. So let's see, again, taking a look at this, John 11, 25, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. See, even though we may die, Jesus is the resurrection and the life And he says, he who believes in me will live, even though he dies. Now, the first thing the Bible tells us about happens when we die is that we live. And we're going to continue to exist. And everything about this has to do with how we live now on this earth. So based on what Jesus says, we know we're going to continue to live after we die, correct? In 1 Corinthians 15... We get a little bit more of an insight as to what immortality looks like. Paul says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised. Imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the immortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. And this is something that I I think we're all wanting to be able to embrace, right? Being on the right side of this equation. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So the Bible again says that all those who have died will be raised to life in, we're going to look at this, one or two different resurrections. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 15 reads, Again, First Thessalonians 4, verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will all be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. You know, I, this is something that, I don't know about you guys, I think we could probably talk more about, right? Heaven? Yeah. I mean, how often does that work itself into a daily conversation? Weekly? Monthly? But, you know, isn't this why we've made Jesus Christ, for those of us that have made Jesus Christ Lord of our lives immortality I mean as long as mankind has been on the face of the planet that life immortal life is something that has been sought after you know the through the various forms of mythology through the generations the immortal gods man wanting to become like a god and it's really kind of amazing that, you know it talks about covering yourself that's that of which is perishable with what is imperishable. That which is mortal with what is immortal. And as Christians, when we've been baptized and our sins are washed away, aren't we able to clothe ourselves in Christ? Yeah. And that is significant. The opportunity to spend eternity with all of those that have made Jesus Christ Lord of their lives. That's amazing. Yeah. And again, you know, we've got a lot of brilliant people that we can look to through the years. A lot of incredible religious greats, like a Muhammad or a Confucius, or a Buddha. But the bottom line is all those guys died, not a one of them came back. Right. Jesus Christ is the only one to do that, and that's why his words are so incredibly significant. You know, the prophets in the Bible never mention that the righteous go immediately to heaven, or the wicked go immediately to hell when they die. And neither did Jesus' apostles ever teach this. And when Jesus was about to leave his disciples, he didn't tell them that he would come immediately back to them. What he does say in John 14 verse 1 is, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And I go to prepare a place for you that when I come again, I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, after death, do we go to heaven, or hell, or do we sleep until the return of Christ? You guys ready for the answer to that? Some of you are looking a little pensive. This is a great question! And to be honest with you, to do justice to the question would require an answer that goes much longer than the 40 minutes that I've been given. Having said all that though, there, here's my answer. And this may not fire you up a whole lot either. But God does not make it absolutely clear as what happens to us immediately after death. But I believe God gives us enough information to get close to that target. Let me describe three possible explanations of what happens when we die. Number one, first one, state of sleep awaiting judgment. You you can find a lot of passages, especially in the Old Testament, that reference this. Psalm 13, 3 says, "Look look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. You know, we spent a little bit of time in the book of Daniel here over the last few weeks. Daniel 12, verse 2 says, Multiples who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, we saw 1 Corinthians 15, seems to imply that death leads to some sort of state of described sleep. But is this, the word sleep in these passages metaphorical or literal? And I think depending on the on the passage, I can't give you a definitive answer without going to all the different specific passages on it. In some, sleep is synonymous with death. In others, sleep is synonymous with sleep. That's why it's super important for us to spend time in the Bible, amen? You know, we talk about being a brand, making sure that, you know, I would go back and check the stuff that I'm putting out there today. You've got the notes on the app? Study that yourself. There may be something outside of the three that I'm talking about here today. But, I can't give a definitive answer when it comes to whether sleep is the state that we go into, but I think there's some things scripture that'll give us some additional insight here. Second possible explanation is immediate judgment with immediate entrance to heaven or to hell. And this one's interesting. I spent quite a bit of time. I couldn't find anything definitively that went after this at all as far as a biblical definition on this point, but a lot of people seem to think that this is the case. So the research that I did, the only thing I could come up with that has pointed to why Western civilization has really adopted this one comes out of a uh, Catholic encyclopedia under the heading of Particular Judgment. And I quote, The dogma is clearly implied in the Union Decree of Eugene IV, which 1439 is the period of time that comes from, which declares that souls leaving their bodies in a state of grace but in need of purification are cleansed In purgatory, whereas souls that are perfectly pure are at once admitted to the beatific vision of the Godhead. Now, beatific, I thought, okay, is this beatific? Am I, I've never seen the word before, never used the word before. I'd learned something in going through this. It's just a joyful state, um, a happy state. Obviously, that's how we're going to feel when we end up with God, Correct. So this beatific vision of the Godhead, "Ipsum diem unum et trinum," which Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is what I'm anticipating that means. Uh, I, I'm so old. When I went to Catholic church as a kid, the mass was actually done in Latin. Not that I understood it then any better than I do now, but it says, "And those who depart in actual mortal sin or merely with the original sin are once consigned to eternal punishment, the quality of which corresponds to their sin." Now, thing thing kind of interesting about the whole thing with purgatory is this actually was the trigger for the Protestant Reformation. And then one of the things that the reformers had issues with was the fact that, you know, if there wasn't really clarity on where you were, everybody was kind of grouped in purgatory. And what you could do is you could go to a priest or a bishop and you could pay an indulgence. And that indulgence would give Basically, hire them on to pray for your purification. You'd make it from purgatory after you burned there for a while and you ended up in a purified state, make it into heaven. But that's where the whole Reformation thing came from in that these indulgences got crazy out of control. Basically, if you were wealthy, didn't matter how you lived in this life, you could go find somebody you could pay off and you would make your way into heaven. And when it it comes to that too, I think there's, looking at this in, in a little bit more detail... Well, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 15 first, and then I'll expand on this. I personally believe this is incorrect. First Corinthians 15 51 and Revelations 20, verses 11 through 15. It says, Then I saw a great white throne in Revelations 20, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from the presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So basically, we got any CPAs or accountants in the group? Because so you guys have books, you know what we're dealing with here, right? If the IRS calls, you have to give an accounting, right? You show up with the books and show them where everything's at, pull up the receipts, invoices, whatever else it is that you've got. This is what we're looking at based on this passage here. There is a time of accounting, breaking out the books. Isaiah and Daniel, the prophets, both talked about this time of accounting when the books would be open. And for me, what this seems to imply is that judgment day is a future event for all of us. You know, what did it say? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This implies a future city, a future time where we will all dwell with God. And I believe there are two rather obvious occurrences in more recent times that kind of color our perspectives on the afterlife. One of them is Dante's great poetry, Dante's Inferno, which sets up heaven, purgatory, and hell immediately after death. And I mean, this thing is crazy. How many of you have read Dante's Inferno? I mean, there are all these different levels of hell and purgatory. All these different levels of, uh, they call them purses and circles. And depending upon how you lived your life, there was this wide array of punishment that was involved. And there was really not much of a chance for anybody getting into heaven based on the way this thing was set up. But it's amazing. This was poetry. This wasn't somebody had gone and come back but it's amazing how many religious cultures have adopted this. I and mean, let me tell you, the kind of death that are in this thing, and they're pretty disgusting. I was gonna go through some, my wife thought I'd be better off if I didn't, so and Andy probably would've felt the same way, so I'm glad I listened to my wife and you guys aren't gonna have to endure it. But after that, the other thing we have is Michelangelo's the, uh, in the Sistine Chapel, Last Judgment, and you have a definitive line between the two, you've got heaven and hell. And again, the thing, the implication is when you die, it's one of these two places. Both of these things had enormous influence on Western culture, so much so that many Christians adopt these philosophies, including purgatory, which isn't referenced anywhere in the Bible. Third possibility, which I personally believe is the correct one, but again, let's not get caught up in that. Let's get caught up in the significance of where this thing will land today. When it comes to the third possibility, I believe it's, this is, again is the correct one based on the studying that I've done, is that we go to a place, either paradise or Hades, to wait for judgment. Let's go ahead and start out in Luke 16, verse 19. And again, this is a parable. But I think the thing you've got to ask yourself with this is why would Jesus paint this picture of these two contrasting places? Luke 16, verse 19, it says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, lifted up his eyes and saw Father Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. You know, Andy kind of talked about this today. We can get caught up in this life And the things of this life. And lose sight of the bigger picture. Which is exactly what happened with the rich man here. And besides. All this between us and you. A great chasm has been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you. May not be able. And none may cross from there to us. And he said. Then I beg you father to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers. So he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus' words, Jesus knowing the outcome of his life, Jesus knowing where he had come from, Jesus putting this on out there, And what had happened to the prophets up to this point in time? Maligned, driven off, killed. Definitively not listened to. And that's why it's so significant we listen to Jesus' words. You know, in this passage, it describes a bad place called Hades. That's where the rich man is waiting. And what we see here is some form of torment. In this scene... Lazarus asks Abraham for the opportunity to go and warm his family against entering Hades. And in this parable, Lazarus is described as being in a better place. Again, this this place of paradise, which we see Jesus reference in Luke 23, 43 to the penitent thief on the cross. What does he say? Today you will be with me in paradise. Obviously he's waiting as well. And again, the parable clearly describes this place, an actual place, where people are in a conscious state of some sort of after-death time, but before judgment. And this is a parable, so again, we've got to be cautious as to any conclusions we would draw about this, but it gives us these two parallel locations to consider. Why would Jesus mention this? Well, again, we, we saw in Luke 23, with the penitent thief, where that comes from. This is what, appear, for me, kind of a, uh, uh, supports this thesis. In Greek mythology, Hades is the Greek god of the underworld, but biblically, Hades is the underworld itself. There's a place in Hades called Tarsitus, which is actually only referenced once in the Bible, in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, by Peter. It says, For if God didn't spear the angels who sinned, but threw them down into Tarsus, and delivered them to be kept in chains until judgment. I believe Tartarus is a section of Hades where the fallen evil angels reside along with unsaved humans. Paradise is the other part of Hades where the saved enter after death before the Lord's return to take us back home with him. John 14 verse 1. Again, your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. You know, to summarize, just coming off of these three locations. There's more than one possible explanation of what happens to us when we die. But all of them are before final judgment. God leaves us with what I believe is most likely, the most likely answer, but he doesn't make it crystal clear. And we got to think about this. If it was really important for us to know, wouldn't God have made it clear? See, the bottom line in this is that it doesn't really matter for practical purposes exactly what happens to us immediately at the point in time we die. Because one thing is absolutely perfectly clear from the Bible. There is for each and every one of us a day and a time in the future when all of us will face judgment and enter an eternal destiny either into heaven with God or hell, separated from God. So after we live... We die once, no reincarnation. Hebrews nine. If we die lost, we don't need to wait until Judgment Day to find out where we stand. John three eighteen says that those who do not believe already stand condemned. 2 Peter two speaks of punishment before Judgment Day, yet after death. So for the saved, that, though, that remain faithful, there's something awesome that happens after death, like the penitent and thief. We go to paradise, not heaven. Jesus insisted that no one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven in his interaction with Nicodemus about needing to be born again of water and spirit. Turn with me, if you will, to John 3, verse 13. John 3, verse 13. says, no one has ever gone into heaven except one, the one, who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Peter also goes on to say in Acts 2, verse 34, that not even David ascended to heaven. See, one reason I believe no one has ever gone to heaven is that Jesus taught this was dependent on what? Doesn't Jesus need to come back again? So again, the reason I believe this is that no one has gone to heaven other than Jesus, and Jesus taught for us to get there was dependent on his coming back. John 14, he said he was going there to prepare a place for us. One day he'll take us there. Yet, has that return taken place yet? No. John 5. John 5 says that when he comes back, all the dead will hear his voice and rise from the dead. So this is part of the sequence in the second coming, the resurrection. After our resurrection, we appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, keep in mind, this judgment is declarative. It's a declaration. It's not investigative. He knows where we stand. God is not trying to figure out whether or not we're going to be admitted to heaven or not. He already knows. He's merely declaring officially what our destiny is. The righteous will then, not before that, go to heaven. The lost will be cast in the lake of fire. So where are all the disciples that have died? What about the roll call of the faithful that we see in Hebrews? Where are they all at? Now again... My opinion, based on what I've studied out, they're in paradise, they're conscious, and they're happy. Are they in heaven? Not yet. You know, it's kind of like, you know, the the feeling you have when there's a really cool concert you want to wait for, and you're in line, waiting for it all to get going. You know, you're kind of happy and joyful, right? That you were able to get a ticket, you're there. And then, man, when that thing opens up, it's a whole nother party. That's what heaven's going to be like. And something to look forward to. So not yet, not until the Lord returns. So even though Sagan, Einstein, they have their theories. Bottom line is they're far from being experts because Jesus is the only one who lived and died and lived again to talk about it. So rather than listening to experts who lack the expertise, how much more should we pay attention to the only one who's in the know? Jesus is the only one who's walked the face of the earth and the heavenly realm. If he says he knows the way to heaven, probably need to listen to Jesus, right? How important is anything else that's said by anybody else, myself included, regarding the topic? John 12, verse 44. John 12, verse 44. It says, Then Jesus cried out, The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. Do you believe? Wow! That's all I need in this lifetime is to believe, right? Cool! I can do what I want. I believe! Well, let's take a look at James 2, verse 19. James 2, verse 19 says, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons that are sitting there in Tarsitus on the other side of the abyss across from paradise believe and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence of faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, was it just because of his belief? That's a huge component, because if it wasn't for the belief, he wouldn't have continued with the endeavor that God sent him on, right? says, so you see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, in in light of what I shared with you today, where are the demons? They're in Tartarus, right? Wrong side of the abyss. Now, do you think they have any pointers for us about the road to paradise and then heaven? Probably. Are they going to be there because of that belief? I don't think so. Do you believe? Yes. So you are saved, right? That's what Jesus said, right? Let's go back to John 12, verse 47. It says, if anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For he did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Amen? The one who rejects me and doesn't accept my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Yeah. The one who rejects me and doesn't accept my sayings. Hmm. What is a lack of acceptance? Isn't that rejection? Yeah. So if we don't accept and apply what Jesus put out there, but we believe in Jesus, yeah. how good is the outcome of that life going to look? Jesus is real clear. The one who rejects me and does not accept my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Rejection. Remember that when it comes to Jesus' sayings. He speaks of salvation. And he knows what his father's expectations are. Jesus has verbalized it to us. You know, for me as a agnostic person when i was introduced to the bible i had read the bible as a novel on a couple different occasions in between the ages of 13 and 32 and there were parts of it i really enjoyed there parts of it that were absolutely nonsensical to me uh the book of leviticus bored the heck out of me um You know, I love the battle sequences, especially with, you know, the guys who've got the blades welded to their hands because they've been out there swinging them for hour on hour and, you know, I'm sure the flesh opened up, cauterized and healed back around those blades. I mean, there are some crazy cool stories in the Old Testament. But, you know, the the reality with that is that's how I viewed them, was stories. Didn't see any personal application in life. Wasn't until I sat down with someone that not only understood what Jesus was saying, but was living in a, just like Abraham when it came to adhering to what God had established and being able to see that demonstrated for the first time made sense to me. Yeah. It was like, okay, this can be done. I remember Hebrews 4 verse 12 where it talks about the, the word is living and active like a sword cutting the very marrow of the bone. i thinking, you know what? I used to view this book as being somewhere in the realm of two to 3,000 years old, depending upon what part I was reading. It's like, what possible significance could that have for my life? I think it was twofold. My heart wasn't in a place to receive the word, but I had never seen a real Christian before. And when I was able to see somebody actually demonstrating the life, living the life in accordance with scripture, this agnostic guy said, you know what? I need to take a little bit closer look at this. And it changed my life. 32 years of marriage to my incredible wife, Jacqueline, without God's word, that thing would have been in the tank so long ago. It actually was two years in. Thank God we were met by Bruce and Nora Teague, and they asked us to study the Bible, and I quit being a bonehead long enough to engage and actually take a look at it. The word is living and active. Jesus' words are living and active. They're applicable to our lives today. Pretty significant. Pretty significant. Good idea to know God's plan for salvation? Well, how can we know what it is? Jesus' word. Verse 49. Jesus says, I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself, the Father himself who sent me has given me a command as to what I should say and what I should speak. I know that his command is Is eternal life. So things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So, in conclusion this morning, what happens when we die doesn't really matter. Because what happens when we die has everything to do with what is happening when we live. So, God has a simpler plan of salvation here. The thing that's awesome about it is we have a choice heaven or hell. It's simple. It's not this, you know, all these different things that we need to consider. It's simple. We either look to Jesus and Jesus' word, or we buy into all the other garbage that the media would love for us to embrace, what 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 they tell us we need to have, what we need to drive, what we need to wear, where we need to live, without any focus on eternity, which is for a lot longer time than any of us have on the face of this planet. Our final arrival will be evident based on who we listen to. I want to give you an example. My mother-in-law lives in West Covina. For me to get to her house, I leave my house, I get on 190th, take 190th to Western, get on the freeway, 405 freeway at Western, take the 405 freeway to the 110 north, to the uh, 105 east, to the 605 north, to the 10 east, I get off on Citrus Avenue. I go about three-quarters of a mile to Evergreen, turn right, at the second house on the right. Who can stand up right now and recite that back for me? (laughs) You want to go for it, Steve? Uh, You're out. (laughs) You're out. You're out. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. How many of you wrote them down? Now, if I told you... I'm gonna run through this real quick and there's a thousand dollars for the person that gets it right. How many of you would have written it down? If it was a million bucks. The rest of you are just a bunch of cynics. Jesus' words let us know what it's gonna to take to get into heaven. How much more significant is that than directions to my mother-in-law's house. I mean, she's a pretty awesome woman. She cooks some pretty awesome food. But, you know, that's kind of short-lived in the grand scheme of things. Even the demons believe that there's one God. Even the demons knew and believed in Jesus. So what is it we need to separate us from the demons? Are you confident if you were to die today, which side of that abyss you're going to be waiting on? Once judgment is pronounced. Would you be in Tartarus or paradise? And here's the thing. Bible's got answers. We got people here that got answers. If you really aren't confident about the answer to this, that's okay. Because you can get the right directions. You know, I appreciate Jackie I appreciate her mother-in-law. She's pretty awesome. People got with her on three different occasions to take a closer look at scriptures. And I love this about Jackie. She doesn't have a problem in words. She told her mom, and she loves her mom. She's a great daughter to her mom. She told her mom, I want to spend eternity in heaven with you. Mom, you know what your problem is? You love your religion more than you love God. Joanne studied the Bible, became a disciple 20 years ago 23 years ago. She's led a Bible talk for years, she's in her 80s. she's an amazing woman. But she's a woman that would have been on the wrong side of the abyss. and the thing that led her to really tap out and study the Bible was having the humility to admit she wasn't confident about where she was going to spend eternity. So if you're not really confident about the answer to that question, you can meet me next Wednesday at 401 South Prospect. I'm not gonna give you directions. I'll give you time to write it down. But again, I'll be at 401 South Prospect, 7.30 p.m. We have our Elevate Singles ministry there, but there's a classroom I can pull aside with you. Or guess what? You know, you may think, dude, who's this Marichi guy? I don't even like him. Why in heaven's name would I want to spend a Wednesday night with him at 401 South Prospect? Well, you know what? You don't need to. Pull aside one of the friends that brought you on out. They can do the same exact thing with you because they know how to get to heaven. Uh, what is the next Wednesday? This or this upcoming Wednesday. What's the date? 20. What is it? 26. So April 26, 730 p.m., 401 South Prospect. Meet me there or pull aside with somebody here. So, what happens after death? State of sleep? Media judgment? Waiting final judgment to spend some time in Tarsitus or Hades? Is one, any one of these three explanations important? No. What's important is how we live, what's important is how you live. Hopefully this is the motivation enough for us to make every effort to enter through the narrow gate into heaven with our God and to bring as many as possible with us. Off of the wide road, which leads to destruction, and onto the narrow road, which leads to life. Close Matthew 17, or Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who will go through it. How narrow is the gate? And difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. It's narrow. It's hard to see. But if you've got the humility and the willingness to take a look at what Jesus has to say about it, you'll find that path. I don't care how narrow it is. You've got that humility. You'll find that path. Hope to see you there. God bless.